What do mermaids, night soldiers, and a living dinosaur reportedly in the Congo all have in common? Stay tuned and you will find out. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews Podcast, and tonight we bring you the Cryptid Triple Play. Welcome to a deep, dark, dank, moist basement somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Coach is feeling a little bit under the weather, so I went out and kidnapped Raylan. Hello, hello. And he's going to pinch hit tonight for the coach, so hopefully everyone enjoys the sweet, sultry sounds of B98.5 and Raylan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No five-star reviews or new patrons to speak about, but we are looking at some more Patreon-exclusive episodes. You've got the $10 tier is, we've got one episode out there right now, so you should be okay. And then we're looking at doing another $10. We've had a lot of people reach out and want to know or give us some ideas for that. So stay tuned. You will be getting more $10 tier and up exclusive videos. If you are just a regular Patreon member, at any level you get the episodes, the weekly episodes early. And you also get Patreon-exclusive episodes. There will be another Patreon-exclusive episode dropping this week as well. So stay tuned. Cannot wait. All right, let's jump into it, Raylan. We are going to first start off with the mermaids. All righty. The mermaids are kind of theorized to come from apes. The theory states that basically... There were many, many apes way before our times, and they had to compete for food. Some people, or some of them, competed in the trees. Some of us came down to the land and competed, and that's why we walk on two legs. And some adapted to become semi-aquatic animals. Yes, the aquatic ape theory, or the AAT, was formulated by Alistair Hardy in year 1960. The theory attempts to answer a lot of unanswered questions that have plagued mankind about our heritage. Why do we walk on two legs? Why are we naked? Why do we sweat? How come that babies automatically hold their breath underwater, etc.? Hardy suggested that we, during the evolution process, spent a considerable time on the coastlines and adapted to a semi-aquatic environment not on the hot, dry savanna or in the forest with other primates. Now, this theory essentially states that millions of years ago, the primates that preceded humans were competing for food. So some evolved to find food on land instead of trees, which is why we walk on two legs. But even then, there was too much competition, and because the earth is made up of so much water, some had to start finding food in the water. Those who started hunting in the water and eventually some of those humanoids adapted and evolved to live in the water, i.e. the mermaids. That's right. 
the mermaids. Now, proponents of the aquatic ape theory cite several traits that modern humans share with aquatic animals, which are not present in savanna mammals. One is a relative hairlessness. Other hominids are covered with hair, even though they come from many of the same areas of the world where mankind evolved. Why did our ancestors lose their fur coats? According to the AAT, it was because they were spending a lot of time in the water. Like with other aquatic mammals, all the hair just got in the way. Now, there are, you can research the aquatic ape theory, and it is, a lot of people say, fringe science, but there are a lot of these shell banks, I think is what they're called. Basically, it's just massive, massive amounts of shells that have been found that predate a lot of our earliest civilizations. And these are not just a ocean tidal wash-up. This is construction with shells. Another thing that they say that savanna mammals do not have is the ability to walk on two legs, which is bipedalism, which gives us great advantages over other animals, namely the ability to move at high speeds while still having our hands available for tools or weapons. Proponents of the aquatic ape theory say this adaptation didn't evolve on the savanna, but in the ocean. An upright body would give our ancestors an advantage when it comes to getting to the surface and breathing air or keeping their heads above water when wading in the shallows. The next one is... Body fat. Humans have more body fat than any other primate and gain fat an exceptional rate when compared to the other mammals. You may think this is because of fast food or five cent wing happy hours, but according to the aquatic ape theory, it is because like whales and dolphins, our ancestors were aquatic mammals. It's not just the amount of fat that we carry, but where it's distributed. Much of our fat is subcutaneous or under the skin. And that, they say, is more indicative of an aquatic environment. Basically, they're saying that we store our fat like whales, blubber. Uh, the other one is large brains. Some proponents of the aquatic ape theory have insinuated that our impressive brain-to-body ratio is due to an aquatic past. They say the fats and other substances found in seafood contributed to the evolution of a better brain. And only when our ancestors began to spend more time in the sea did this big brain become possible. And the last one that they talk about is... The respiratory system. Aquatic ape theory advocates suggest that our ability to control breathing is unusual for a land mammal and more indicative of those that have evolved in an aquatic environment. Furthermore, the position of our larynx seems more like an aquatic animal and is unlike any other land mammals. So, we just gave you a little bit of history, and everybody's probably thinking, well, in the opening, you said that we are going to talk about cryptids. Well, the reason we wanted to start with the aquatic ape theory is because this is where proponents of this theory state that there are mermaids and mermen living in the oceans. Now, it does present a compelling explanation for how a fully aquatic human-like creature may have evolved 
like modern whales that evolved from land mammals long ago. Is it possible that a species of ape descended from the same ancestors as we humans may have evolved a flipper tail while retaining a human-like upper body? Yes, indeed. Now, the modern depictions of mermaids are that a beautiful semi-human woman living beneath the sea was widely believed to be superstitious sailors, many of whom spent weeks or months crossing dangerous oceans. Most mermaids are depicted as beautiful female creatures, alluring and gentle and possibly a bit naive about the ways of us land lovers. But it wasn't always so. If mermaids are really out there and the aquatic ape theory really does explain their evolution, they probably do not look much like the little pretty young girls that they are depicted as. And they wouldn't have tails like fish. They would be like any other mammal in the sea, perfectly evolved at the skills necessary to find food, avoid predators, make little mermaids, and about nothing else, really. Once we put those pieces together, we can see that any mermaids that evolved from this set of circumstances would probably be intelligent and adept at defending themselves. They might live in social groups, and they might use tools. They might even be dangerous, as the early sailors warned. In ancient times, mermaids usually brought bad news in the form of shipwrecks, death by drowning, and storms. Even pirates feared that mermaids might trick them out of their loot and or send their ship to the bottom of the sea out of vengeance. Woe to the sailor who crossed the mermaid. Sailors and ship passengers spotted mermaids all the time, and made many ocean-going people regarded the mermaids as real creatures of the sea. Of course, many experts write these sightings off as the delirious hallucinations of seamen who had been out on the ocean too long, away from women or any other civilization for that matter. Some cite that the manatee, as a possible culprit when it comes to animals, which may have been misidentified as mermaids, that makes sense well enough. Most skeptics state that mermaids and the and other sea monsters are most likely products of wild imaginations and too many hours spent at sea. Now, if that's true, we'd have to think there would no longer be any mermaid sightings if it was just all drunken sailors and too many knights looking for destruction on the ocean. The oceans of the world are being explored more and more. As our collective knowledge of the sea increases, mermaids should have vanished into the realm of superstition and myth, but that's not been the case. There are alleged mermaid sightings even today from around the world. So what are these people seeing? Eventually, we can't help but wonder if there is something to these stories, and if sailors from days of old maybe weren't so crazy after all. Though not as well known as their female counterparts, mermen have an equally fierce reputation for summoning storms, seeking ships, and drowning sailors. One especially feared group, the Blue Men of the Minch, are said to dwell in the outer Hebrides off the coast of Scotland, according to the Scotsman. They look like ordinary men, from the waist up anyway, with the exception of blue-tinted skin and gray beards. Local lore claims that before laying siege to a ship, the blue men often challenge its captain with a rhyming contest. If the captain is 
Quick enough of wit and agile enough of tongue, he can best the blue men and save his sailors from a watery grave. Now, Japanese legends have a version of merfolk called the kappa, said to reside in Japanese lakes, coasts, and rivers. These are child-sized water spirits, and they appear more animal than human. They have a simian face and a tortoise shell on their back. Like the blue men, the kappa sometimes interact with humans and challenge them to games of skill in which the penalty for losing is death. Kappa are said to have an appetite for children and those foolish enough to swim alone in remote places. Throughout West, South, and Central Africa, the mythical water spirit called Mamiwata, which means Mother of the Waters, was once worshipped for their ability to bestow beauty, health, and wisdom to their followers. Mamiwata is often portrayed as a mermaid or snake charmer. However, her appearance has been influenced by presentations of other indigenous African water priests, as well as European mermaids and Hindu gods and goddesses. So what would a real-life mermaid be like? Now, this is a theory, and only a theory, and if we are to assume that mermaids evolved from a similar ancestor as us humans, we can make some educated guesses about their lifestyle, their behavior, and some of the attributes that they may possess. Intelligence. With big brains and a lineage close to modern humans, mermaids have to be pretty smart. Dolphins and whales are fairly intelligent as marine mammals go, but mermaids would be far beyond this level. This, no doubt, made adaptation to an aquatic environment easier as their problem-solving skills would have helped them along the way. Like humans and our ancestors, we are very sociable. And if mermaids are real, they would probably live in sociable groups and work together in a social community. They might construct habitat under the ocean, but at the very least, they must maintain contact with each other and coordinate their efforts in a hunting-type situation. It is also likely that a big-brained mermaid would utilize tools, and these tools would be specific to their environment. If they have used or constructed these tools, we have not found them. At least we'd have to assume that, like the chimpanzees, they may use objects like rocks or under-sea items for tools. Elusive and rare. The ocean is a dangerous place, and no doubt mermaids would be on the menu for many creatures, just as humans were in the African savanna. They would have learned to hide and steer clear of danger quite well, one would think, this brings up an unlikely comparison to another well-known elusive hominid, Bigfoot. If Bigfoot is able to remain hidden in the woods of North America, what are the chances we would ever find a mermaid in the vastness of the ocean? I would say slim to none. They would also have a predatory behavior, and now it was food that drove our ancestors close to the ocean, and if the aquatic ape theory is correct, it was food that sent them into the ocean. While it's likely that mermaids may enjoy some ocean veggies, the protein and essential fats from shellfish and other sea life are what the aquatic ape theory points to as certainty and the driving force behind their big brains. They may or may not be taking down large prey, but certainly we can assume that mermaids are catching and eating lobsters, shrimps, 
clams, mussels, and other easy-to-grab aquatic critters. They may be dangerous to humans. While they most likely wouldn't prey on humans, in the same way you wouldn't corner an adult chimp or a gorilla, it is probably wise to avoid a confrontation with a mermaid, especially in their own environment. One would think they would be more than equipped to quickly dispatch a creature as feeble as a human. Yes. Yes. A temple in Fukuoka, Japan, is said to house the remains of a mermaid that washed ashore in 1222. According to the Smithsonian, its bones were preserved at the behest of a priest who believed the creature had come from the legendary palace of a dragon god at the bottom of the ocean. For nearly 800 years, the bones have been displayed. The water used to soak the bones was said to prevent diseases. Only a few of the bones remain since they have not been scientifically tested. Their true nature remains unknown. That's terrible. <laughs> in 1600s in Holland, a story claims that a mermaid had entered Holland through a dike and was injured in the process. She was taken to a nearby lake and soon nursed back to health. She eventually became a productive citizen, learning to speak Dutch, perform household chores, and eventually converted to Catholicism. Of course she did. She's got to be a Catholic back in the 1600s. The next we have a sighting from 1608 in Delaware. In 1608, a year before Henry Hudson arrived at the Delaware Bay, Hudson reported, "This morning, one of our company, one of our company, looking overboard, saw a mermaid. Her back and her and breasts were like a woman's, as they say that saw her. Her body as big as one of us." Her skin, very white, a long hair dangling down behind, of color black. In her going down, they saw her tail, which was like the tail of a porpoise, or speckled like a mackerel. Like a mackerel, she was speckled. In 1614 in Newfoundland, a captain off the coast described his encounter, quote, Captain John Smith, and for those of you keeping score, yes, the same John Smith of Jamestown fame, saw a mermaid swimming about with all possible grace. He pictured her as having large eyes, a finely shaped nose that was somewhat short, and well-formed ears that were rather too long. Smith goes on to say that her long green hair imparted to her an original character that was by no means unattractive. In fact, Smith was so taken with this lovely woman that he began to, quote, experience the first effects of love, end quote, as he gazed at her before his sudden and surely profoundly disappointing realization that she was a fish from the waist down. Surrealist painter René Magritte depicted a sort of reverse mermaid in his... 1949 painting, The Collective Invention. Next, we have the Fiji Mermaid. Now, this one is probably the first one that most people would, if you look into it, this is probably the first famous sighting, or what do you call it? Um, go ahead. They'll, you'll explain it. Just the go ahead. 
the premier sighting. By the 1800s, hoaxers turned out fake mermaids by the dozens to satisfy the public's interest in the creatures. The great showman P.T. Barnum displayed the Fiji mermaid in the 1840s, and it became one of his most popular attractions, those paying 50 cents and hoping to see a long-limbed, fish-tailed beauty comb her hair were surely disappointed, and said they saw a grotesque, fake corpse a few feet long. It had the torso, head, and limbs of a monkey and the bottom part of a fish. To modernize, it was obviously faked, but fooled and intrigued many at the time. Well, it was the 1800s. Yeah, we didn't know any better. Now, 1943, during uh, World War II, Japanese soldiers were stationed in a 555-square-mile area in the Key Islands in Indonesia. There, they had some strange encounters with mermaids during their time. The local villagers were familiar with these creatures and called them orangakan, which translate to manfish. The creatures were described as being around 150 centimeters tall, having spikes on their spine, shoulders, and neck. They were said to have pink salmon-colored skin and a mouth that resembled a carp. Rather than having a fish tail, these creatures had long arms and frog-like legs, both of which had talons at the end. The Japanese soldiers recorded many different sightings, saying they even saw some on land, suggesting they were amphibious, but mostly seemed at home in the water. One instance, a troop of soldiers claimed to be exploring some unseen land and came upon a natural lagoon. Everything seemed normal until there was sudden thrashing in the water. Suddenly, an orangutan jumped out of the water onto a nearby rock. It turned and faced the soldiers and let out a, quote, gurgling, burping noise that didn't seem to be friendly. They then saw another creature moving smoothly in the water toward them as fast as any fish could. Not knowing the intention of the creatures, the soldiers opened fire at the rocks and into the water only to have the creatures disappear from view. A sergeant named Mr. Taro spoke to the villagers and requested if any of the Orangakan were captured, dead or alive, to contact him immediately. It was soon after that the chief summoned the general and, to his astonishment, saw with his own eyes the lifeless aquatic creature he described what he saw as, quote, roughly four foot nine inches tall, Pinkish skin, human-looking face and limbs, spikes along its head, and a mouth like a carp. I'm all right. Quote. I'm not. I'm all right. I don't. I no. mess. I, I'll mess with Bigfoot and stuff. I might. So an eight foot, eight hundred pound gorilla, you're gonna go out there and throw rocks at, but you're not gonna mess with a four foot nine. Because a gorilla, all right, doesn't look like my sleep paralysis demon, <laughs> all right. <laughs> I ain't messing with my actual sleep paralysis demon, Mr. I have frogs for legs. I don't have frogs for legs. I'm not saying you have frogs. I don't have legs for frogs either. In 1967, British Columbia, Canada. How crazy would it be to see a real mermaid just lounging on the beach for hundreds of eyes to see? The social media exposure would undoubtedly capture every moment and be able to debunk any fakers. That was not the case back in 1967 near the main islands of British Columbia. Story goes, a ferry filled with tourists spotted a blonde-haired mermaid sitting topless on the beach, eating a salmon fish. 
and enjoying the waves splash up upon her. One witness said she was attractive and had dimples. There was one photo taken of the event, which does show a blonde woman with the lower half of a porpoise. A similar incident happened later that week in a, with a mermaid spotting, but by that time, there were plenty of skeptics who didn't believe she was real. Charles White, from the Undersea Gardens, financed $25,000 reward for the mermaid's capture, and even offered a room and board with special calms for the mermaid's pleasure. This may sound odd, but the company was desperate to prove her existence. Unfortunately, the story died soon after. After? After. All right. In 1998, Kilauea Kona. The island of Hawaii has plenty of folklore and legends, which we will get to next. Oh, my goodness. And they also have a lot of these legends around the beautiful aquatic creatures. But in 1998, a diver named Liker claims he got the first ever documented proof that mermaids do exist. Liker operates the Jack Diving Locker of Kauai and was 20 minutes off the coast of Kauai when he saw what looked like a nude woman swimming with a pod of dolphins. The woman was able to keep up the pace with the dolphins, which he thought was extremely odd. All of a sudden, she jumps into the air, and he realizes she has the lower half of a fish. Ten people on the boat witnessed the incident, but the mermaid disappeared after just two jumps out of the water. You might think this is the end of the story, but an hour later, as Liker was photographing some underwater life, the same mermaid brushed up against him while swimming and turned back around just in time for him to snap a few pictures. He says, quote, I feel very lucky that I'm the one to finally prove to the world what people have known for over a half a century, said Liker. The Kauai Point Mermaid is real. End quote. And we'll post a picture of some of these on our social medias and we'll let you be the judge of what you think is real and what is fake. And for those of you that are completely confused, he meant kaiwi because kawaii mean, in Japanese is cute. Well, we were talking about Hawaii, so it's not Japanese. Well, actually, they're pretty close and diffusional. In 2009, Israel news reporters in uh, claimed that a mermaid had been sighted off the coast of Israel in the town of, oh Lord, I'm about to Kirat. butcher this, Kirat Yam. Yam. Kirat Yam. It, or she, performed a few tricks for onlookers just before sunset, then disappeared for the night. One of the first people to see the mermaid, Shlomo Kohen, I apologize for butchering that, said, I was with friends when suddenly we saw a woman lying on the sand in a weird way. At first... I thought she was just another sunbather, but when we approached, she jumped into the water and disappeared. We were all in shock because we saw she had a tail. The town's tourism board was delighted of their newfound fame and offered a $1 million reward for the first person to photograph the creature. Unfortunately, the reports vanished almost as quickly as they surfaced, and no one ever has claimed the reward. Now, some of you may remember that Josh Gates and his team from Destination Truth very old claim, or traveled to the coast of Israel and the town of Kirat Yam to see if they could prove it. And of course, no, they didn't. 
Now, in 2012 in Zimbabwe, there is a case that dam workers who were trying to install a water pump, which was crucial to the local agriculture, had a siding. Local divers and workers were hired to see what was blocking the pump, and when they surfaced, vowed never to return. Sam Sepepa Nakomo, a water resource minister, told the Senate committee the village chiefs could perform an ancient ritual to get rid of the mermaid and calm the workers' anxiety. They still refused to return even after the ritual was performed. Being skeptical of the workers' reasons for quitting, the government hired outside help, as they thought this belief was cultural. But the new workers reported the same thing and again refused to finish the repairs. To this day, the dam is still not finished. Uh, I'm just going to say this right now. I do not blame them for leaving, because if I saw something like that, I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to stay. Right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is our little teaser of the mermaids. Now we get into the Night Marchers of Hawaii. Now, Night Marchers are ghostly apparitions of a band of beings who move with purpose to the beat of primitive pounding drums. Some say they are armed spirit warriors en route to or from battle, toting ancient weaponry and clothed in decorated helmets and cloaks. Other accounts tell of high-ranking ruler spirits being guided to places of high importance or to welcome new warriors to join in battle. Perhaps these restless souls are looking to reclaim rightful territory, replay a battle gone awry, or avenge their own deaths. Some say the night marchers are searching methodically for an entrance into the next world. Night marchers are said to roam through very specific locations and are often recognized by their raised torches and repeated chants. Although there have been a few scattered reports of daytime marches, these apparitions appear to be most active at night and are said to march on certain nights designated by the phases of the moon. And although the night marchers are allegedly afloat, just a few inches off the ground, some local accounts tell of seeing mysterious footprints in their path after they have passed. Areas like... Oh, Lord. You picked a good one. Yeah, I did. Kill it. New Nuanu, <laughs> Pali Lookout, Kaawa Valley, and Kai, Kalihi Valley on Oahu are rumored sites of the Night Marcher trails, and nighttime visitors are encouraged... encouraged to be wary, other alleged night marcher sites include Oahu's Pali Highway, which runs along the famous Kamehameha Battle Site. Kamehameha. 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 And nighttime visits, especially alone, are not recommended. The Kamehameha School's campus on Kapalama. Kapalama. Kapalama on Oahu, over 100 years old, is said to have been visited by night marchers on many occasions. At Kualoa Ranch in Oahu's Windward Coast, night marchers have been spotted around an area that is said to house the remains of hundreds of Hawaiian chiefs and are said to be responsible for a good time, a a good many nighttime car accidents. At La Perouse Bay, an area in the Ahahi Canal, 
Natural Area Preserve in South Maui, the restless night marchers are said to roam along the hardened lava landscape in search of mischief. Now, the town of Kwanakaki... You actually did pretty good, Kwanakaki? On Molokai is rumored to be a night marcher hotspot as the remnants of (laughs) Ili Ili Ope (laughs) Hayu, a sacred temple site which is located nearby. La'i on Oahu was a city of refuge in ancient Hawaii where criminals and offenders of the cultural strict Akaipu religious practices were held. Even today, spirits of soldiers are said to roam the outskirts of La'ai in search of possible escapees. What are we going to do when happening upon a night march in progress? The ghostly procession must never be interrupted. Legend has it that resting your eyes upon the night marchers could signal a grim fate for the perpetrator, a friend, or a a relative. If you're already in the path of the night marchers' trail, legend dictates that you must strip naked and lie face down. There is a rumor that peeing on yourself will keep you alive. Whatever you decide to do, don't look at them. If you're lucky enough to share a bloodline with somebody marching in the procession, you'll supposedly be saved. Any sound or movement could invite a night marcher's deadly glance. These night marchers are set diligently upon their destination and are not considered spirits that will deviate from their path. Whatever you do, don't whistle in the dark. Some say that you might inadvertently summon the night marchers, and if they arrive, no walls can stop them. The only thing that has been said to cause them to veer from a path is the present of tea plants, a colorful evergreen plant with widespread cultural significance in Hawaii planted around a home. T as in T-I, not T-E-A plants. So let me get this straight. You're saying that if I happen to be in Hawaii and I hear the beating drums and see the tickling flames from the night marchers, I should strip naked, lay face down, and piss myself. Or actually, no, lay face up, pee, and then roll over because you've, po- you've peed all over yourself. Therefore, they will not be able to get you because your scent is too strong and they will veer the, I don't know, veer the other way. It's like ants going around a carcass. Nope, not that. <laughs> <laughs> Favorite nights of the night marchers are the Pokani and the Poakua. The Pokani is the nights of the Hawaiian gods. You guessed it, Kane. Chiefs, chiefesses, priests, and close attendants. The Pokakua on the 14th night of the new moon. Spirits or chiefs, warriors, and... Aumakua. Aumakua. The guardian spirits march between sunset and sunrise. Some characteristics of the mysterious night marchers include heavy wind. Like butt wind? Rows of spirits carrying torches. Alternate male and female rows. Accompanying lightning and thunder. Accompanying heavy rain or high surf. Chanting and drum beats. Unusually bright torches. Game playing and revelry. In the dark? Revelry in the dark. Accompanying mist or fog. So, here's the deal. If you're in Hawaii at night, don't whistle. If you happen to get even stronger winds than they normally have. Strip naked. If you hear lightning or thunder, see heavy rain or high surf coming. Or mist or fog. Strip naked, 
lay face up, pee on yourself, then turn around and don't make a sound. And don't look at them, because you'll die. I could be making a sound. I'd be sobbing. Other alleged night marcher sites are... Moanalua on Oahu. Kahakawaloa on Maui. Keka on Maui. Hanapepe on Kauai. Hakunui on Lanai. Waipao Bali on the Big Island. Is that what it's called? The Big Island? Mm-hmm. Hilo <laughs> on the Big Island. Waipio on the Big Island. There's not very many sightings or encounters because supposedly most people can't have the wherewithal to strip naked, pee themselves, and lay face down quietly so everybody dies. Yep. But there were a smattering of sightings that we will discuss. A smattering? A smattering. Oh not my. a plethora, but just a smattering. Oh. Ricky, damn it, Ricky, a security guard at the Cades Shoot Building claims he once caught a glimpse of the night marchers during a brief trip some 19 years ago. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Did it not tell us to not look at them? Well, pay attention. <laughs> Ricky and his then-girlfriend Jennifer visited their friend Richard and his son Ryan, who were camping on the beach. Ricky rem- remembers the exact date, July 5th, 1995. They arrived on the beach between 10 and 11 p.m. A distant flash of light caught their attention in the dark. It looked like a line of fire ants marching down the mountain by Dillingham Airfield. Quote, I thought people were hunting but there was a long line of torches, end quote, he said. It was a strange sight at first because it looked like an endless line of torches disappearing off the mountain ridge, but he later realized those weren't hunters, but the night marchers. He recalls hearing the legend of the night marchers as a kid at the YMCA, YMCA. Camp Erdman, who one staffer always used to warn young campers about a night marcher's path in the same spot he saw them. Luckily, Ricky and his friends survived to tell the tale. He hasn't been back to the beach since. Okay, so there well, are... Damn f- it, Ricky, I was high. <laughs> <laughs> I was on them shrooms, I saw them tea plants over there, and I don't know what happened. And all of a sudden, there was a line of torches, and everything was on fire. So, in downtown... On Alulu, there's reportedly a night marcher's trail that runs through the footprint of Davies Pacific Center. In 2012, Kapanui met with attorneys on the 23rd floor who claimed that the building's security cameras captured the night marchers on video. A native Hawaiian cleaning lady was reportedly doing her job at night when a column of mist appeared. The woman died the next day. The following month, someone has claimed to have... Seen the ghost of the lady marching with the night marchers and disappearing to the other side of the wall. I'm out. I'm not working there anymore. (laughs) Not coming back to work. Y'all can clean your own Shut her down. I ain't doing this. Nope. Ain't happening. Now, that was course two. So let's jump into... That was a very short one. There's not a lot out there about the night watchers because, really, they're only in Hawaii. Well, I I would like to point out... A discrepancy with Ricky's account. There's a damn cougar in the car. (laughs) I know there's a cougar in the car. I put her in there. You got to learn how to drive with distractions, Ricky. (laughs) So it is said that looking at them would cause death to one of your friends. 
yourself or one of your relatives. Nobody died. See, I was researching this. I'm wondering if they meant, like when he said he saw him in the distance, if you look, made eye contact with him, you would die. I'm thinking that's what they're talking about, if you looked at him, not if you gazed upon the march. I'm thinking if you looked up and they made eye contact with you, then you would die. Well, time to gouge my eyes out when I go to Hawaii. I ain't looking nowhere. I'm not going out at night. <laughs> so the third and last course for our triple play of cryptids is the Mokele Membe. Now, we I'll, have had a discussion about how this is pronounced, so go ahead. No, I will say that I'm going to be using Mokele Membe, but I will say I looked this up, and apparently it's Mokol or Maokol Bem. But I'm saying Mokele Bembe because... It's just easier. Yes. <laughs> Mokele Bembe, which means the one who stops the flow of rivers in the Lingala language, is a dinosaur-type cryptid that is rumored to live in the jungles of the Central African countries of Congo, Cameroon, and... Gabon. Gabon. Villagers there report an animal with a long neck, a long tail, and rounded shaped tracks with three claws. The closest known animal in the, to these characteristics is a sauropod dinosaur. When some of the local people of the Likaola region would draw in the dirt or sand a picture of the Mokelebembe, they drew the shape of a sauropod dinosaur. Then they were shown a picture of the sauropod dinosaur. They said that picture was the Mokelebembe. Is this like a distant cousin of Nessie? No, kind of. That's what it's been rumored. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence out there that says that there is something going on. I mean, there's enough. I don't know. It's this. There's a lot of videos out there where it doesn't really show a dinosaur, but it shows something that's not. Shouldn't be there, I guess is the best thing. And we'll get into some of the sightings, but uh, yes, it is supposed to be very similar to Nessie, Champy, Lake Champlain kind of stuff. So, a French priest in the region called it a monstrous animal, and Mokelemembe is also used as a generic term to refer to other animals like Amela Ntukawa, Mbela and Nguma Monane. Mokelemembe has been described as an animal with a long neck and tail, which are characteristics of, like Raylan said, the sauropod dinosaur. Its body size is somewhere between the size of a hippo and an elephant. Its length has been reported to be between 5 to 10 meters long, which is 16 to 32 feet. The length of the neck is between 1.6 to 3.3 meters, or 5 to 10 feet. And the length of the tail is between 1.6 to 3.3 meters or 5 to 10 feet. The reports out of Cameroon have reported Mbembe to be up to 75 feet in length. There have also been reports of a frill on the back of its head. The frill is like the comb around a male chicken. There have also been reports of it having a horn on its head. It could be based on terrified locals who have found bones of prehistoric sauropods. The color of the skin is predominantly a reddish brown with a color range from gray to brown. There are no reports of any types of hair on the animal. The tracks are round in shape between one and three feet in diameter with three claws. The distance between the tracks is about seven to eight feet. The basic 
belief is that Mokelebembe does not make any sounds, through, though there have come conflicting reports. Now, here's the thing. Everybody's like, oh, if the dinosaurs live and it was moving, it'd be making lots of dang noise. Well, what about the forest elephants in Africa? They move all the time, and you can't hear them suckers coming. So I'm not saying this thing's 100% real, but I'm saying that if you're basing your facts that it's not real off the port that they can't be heard, you're an idiot. <laughs> this is probably due to the fact that the Mokelebembe is used generically for other animals, and the sound is being confused with Emela Ntoka, which makes the sound of a snort, howl, roar, rumble, or growl. Mokelebembe lives in the pools and swamps adjacent to rivers in the Likola Swamp region of the People's Republic of Congo. It uses the lakes as a crossing path to go from one river to another river. The pygmies of the Likaula Swamp region report that the diet of the Mokelebembe consists of the Malumbo plant. It lives most of the time underwater except when it eats or travels to other parts of the swamp. It is reported that the Mokelebembe does not like hippopotami. I'm assuming that's... Or, here's an easier way to say it, hippos. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> my bad. It does not like hippos and will kill them on sight, but it does not eat them. Hippos cannot be found where the Mokelebembe lives. It has also been reported that the Mokelebembe will overturn boats and kill people from the boats by biting them and hitting them with its tail. But then again, it does not eat the people. In 1930, the pygmy stated that they had built a barrier of stakes to keep Mokelebembe from entering Lake Tele. That way, the pygmies could fish in a safe haven. As the story goes, two of the creatures, obviously displeased with a new barrier, attacked the wall of stakes. The pygmies then attacked and speared one of the creatures to death. Upon killing the creature, the tribesmen cooked the animal and held a feast. The story goes on to tell how everyone who ate a piece of Mokelemembe later died either from food poisoning or other natural causes. So, disclaimer, if we ever find that it's real and you kill one, do not eat it. Cajuns, do not eat Mokelemembe. <laughs> okay. Rednecks, do not eat Mokelemembe. <laughs> there have been many expeditions that set out in search of the beast, some small, some large, but all were said to be well organized. So, to say there's been many expeditions is an understatement. There has been a ton of expeditions. So the first one was an American expedition in 1909. Naturalist Carl Hagenbeck recounted in his autobiography how two separate individuals, a German named Hans Schomburg, Schomburg and an English hunter, told him about a huge half-elephant, half-dragon, which lived in the Congo swamps. Later, another naturalist, Joseph Menges, related to Hagenbeck that... Some kind of dinosaur seeming, seemingly akin to the brontosaurs. The brontosaurs are the ones with the ginormous necks that you see in... Which were all made up. Oh, yeah. They were? Yeah, brontosaurs never existed. I never, I never knew that. Yeah, it was all made up. But anyway, go ahead. Inhabited the swamps. Hagenbeck soon turn, sent an expedition to the Congo 
to search for the monster, but the effort was quickly aborted due to the disease and hostile natives. Think about going to mainland Africa, the Congo especially, in the turn of the 20th century when you didn't know a whole lot about malaria and how it was transmitted and die <laughs> from a mosquito bite <laughs> in a swamp looking for a dinosaur. <laughs> God, once you got to the pearly gates, God's like, what are you, stupid? So, yeah. how, so young child, how did you die? I went to a swamp and I got bit by a mosquito looking for the monsters. <laughs> so the German expedition of 1913 had Captain Freire von Steinzutlausnitz, who was sent by the German government to explore Cameroon. Von Stein wrote an, a unique animal called, in the local tongue, Mokelemembe, said to inhabit the areas near the Ubangi, Sanga, and Akelemba rivers. He described the creature accordingly. Quote, the animal is said to be of brownish gullet color with a smooth skin, its size approximately that of an elephant, at least that of a hippopotamus. Now I'm going to British. It is said to have a long, very flexible neck and one only tooth, but very long. Now we're Italian. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Some say it is a horn. A few spoke about a long, muscular tail like that of an alligator. It is said to climb the shore even at daytime in search of food. Its diet is said to be entirely vegetable. At the Sosombo River, I was shown a path and told that it had been made by the animal in order to get to its food. The path was fresh, and there were plants of the described type, a liana, nearby, end quote. So I would like to jump in here. So 1913, this is when World War I is starting to heat up, correct? So, I wonder if the German government sent him to find that thing. And we're going to tame it. And we it. could be like Hannibal from in Carthage going to the Romans. Die! Kill the thing! Yeah, maybe, but I don't know. But I they mean, don't... We, but we could have a whole episode on how the Germans look for crazy shit right before or during a war. American Expedition in 1920. The 32-men strong expedition was sent out from, from the Smithsonian institution in Washington, D.C. After six days, African guides found large unexplained tracks along the bank of a river, and later the team heard mysterious roars, which had no resemblance to any known nanal animal (laughs) coming from an unexplored swamp. However, the Smithsonian's hunt for the Mokelebembe was to end in tragedy. During a train ride through the flooded area, where the entire tribe was said to have seen the creature, the locomotive suddenly derailed and turned over. Four team members were crushed to death under the cars and a half a dozen seriously injured. Was it by the hands of Mokilimembe? Does it have magic? Do dinosaurs now have the power to ooh, curse Ugachunga? Well, it was going through a swamp. It could have bumped something and cra- caused a ru- uh, yeah. wave. There was another American expedition in 1932, American cryptozoologist Ivan Sanderson was traveling in Africa and came across a large hippo-like track in a region where no hippos were said to have roamed. There was another expedition in 1932 by an American cryptozoologist Ivan Sanderson who was traveling in Africa and came across large hippo-like tracks in a region where no hippos were said to have roamed. 
he was told by the natives that they were made by a creature <laughs> named the. Uh, <laughs> Have fun, buddy. <laughs> Mcbulu Mbembe. Later, Sanderson saw something in the water that seemed too large to be a hippo, but it disappeared before he could investigate further. Another American expedition. Americans seem very interested in the Mukelebembe. This one happened in 1972. The expedition did, but we start off in 1960. Herpetologist James H. Powell Jr. took interest in the African dragons and organized an expedition to the Congo in 1972. Powell's expedition, unfortunately, was fraught with problems. The U.S. and the Congo had poor relations at this time. Many months of hardships, such as snake bites, near drownings, and tropical diseases, only led to more witness testimonies about Mokelebembe and, and another lizard-like creature, which locally was called Yamala. In 1976... James Powell decided to go to Gabon instead, inspired by a book called Traitor Horn. In 1927, the book, a memoir of the author's time in Gabon, specifically along the Ogue River, was written by Englishman Alfred Aloysius Smith. He recorded having a creature called the Jagonini and identified it with the Amali a creature whose tracks had been seen. He was quick to realize they were probably identical to the Mokelebembe. Furthermore, Powell heard local legends of the Nyamala. The locals identified pictures of a sauropod dinosaur as bearing the most resemblance to the animal. In 1980, a German expedition mounted by engineer Hermann Rugsters and his wife, Kia, managed to make its way to Lake Tele where they heard the growls and roars of an unknown creature. They also claimed to have photographed Mokelemembe in the lake, as well as watching it walk on land throughout the bush. According to Rooksters, the creature they saw was 30 to 35 feet long. So, an e American expedition in the same year, led by none other than our best friend Powell, this time he brought around... Cryptozoologist Roy P. Mackle. Powell and Mackle found that a large number of reports came from the banks of Likola Ox Herbes River near Lake Tele. They said that most witnesses maintained that the animal was between 15 and 30 feet long and the long neck accounted for much of the length. The creature was also said to be a rust color and that some had been seemed to possess a frill or crest. Yet another expedition was organized in 1981, this time composed by Roy P. Michael, the same cryptozoologist, J. Richard Greenwell, M. Justin Wilkinson, and the Congolese zoologist Marcelin Agnagana. The expedition encountered what they believed was a Congo dinosaur along the Lakalawala River when they heard a large animal leaping into the water near Apeña. They also discovered a path of broken branches supposedly made by the animal, as well as a number of footprints. Okay, so the next is admittedly odd, because it is from Africa itself in 1983. In April of 1983, a Congolese expedition led by Marcelin Agnagna 
a zoologist from the Brazzaville Zoo, arrived to Lake Tele. Ignagna claimed to have seen the beast some 275 meters out in the lake. The animal held its thin reddish head, which had a crocodile-looking oval eyes and a thin nose. On a height of 90 centimeters and looked from side to side almost as if it was watching him. According to Ignagna, the animal was a reptile, though not a crocodile, nor a python or a freshwater turtle. So now we have the Brits getting in on this funny business in 1985. Englishman William J. Gibbons, presently living in Canada, talked to several eyewitnesses who gave him valuable information about the Mukalabimbe. He is currently convinced that the dinosaur exists, but at the time was unable to prove it. However, upon his return to the UK, he brought with him the remains of a monkey, which he could not identify. It was later classified as a new subspecies of crestless Mangabe monkey. Fish and insect specimens were also found in the Congo's remain unclassified to this day. Yes, which just goes to prove that we are finding more and more things in the jungles that we don't know exist. A Japanese expedition in 1987 produced a piece of a blurry video filmed supposedly Mukelimembe in Lake Tele. Now, this is almost like the Patterson-Gimlin film when it comes to Bigfoot. This is the only disputable evidence that the animal exists. Now, the problem is the film is very grainy, possibly just showing two men in a boat with one of them standing upright in the front of the vessel, as is common practice in Africa. This has been interpreted as the head and neck of Makele Membe, but this interpretation of the videotape is purely speculative at best. So the quality is exactly like the Patterson Gibson film. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been stabilized and put under scrutiny like the Patterson-Gimlin film has. So now we get into the British expedition of 1990. Author and explorer Redmond O'Hanlon returned from his failed expedition, convinced that witnesses must have mistaken wild elephants crossing rivers with their trunk in the air for a prehistoric Michele Membe. Another British expedition in 1992. William Gibbons tried again six years later, this time together with American explorer Rory Nugent. Together they searched almost two-thirds of the unexplored By River, while also examining two small lakes northwest of Lake Tele. These are lakes Paulauquo and Lake Tibeke, which are surprisingly absent from most maps. Both are said to be haunts of Mokelebembe, Rory Nugent also took two interesting photographs of something most unusual in Lake Tele. One may actually show the head of a Mokelebembe. In 1992, another Japanese expedition was launched and resulted in what has been called the best evidence of Mokelebembe. This is an aerial footage of some shape parting water in the lake. Unfortunately, it's like most Nessie sighting footages. Looks like a log. Yeah, basically. I mean, it could have been anything from Makele Membe itself to crocodile, an elephant, or even, like we said before, could be just pygmies in a canoe. Yep. An American expedition 
in 2006 is our next expedition. As reported by Cryptomundo, Milt Marcy, Peter Beach, and Rob Mullen left Portland, Oregon for Cameroon on January 10th, 2006. They teamed up with Pierre Sima to conduct the next phase of the cryptozoological zool. Zoology, zoo, oh Jesus Lord. Christ, you have butchered <laughs> that. Cryptozoological research on the Congo slash Cameroon border in search of the Mokelebembe. No evidence was thought to be collected. American expedition in 2013 is our next expedition. A young Missouri man named Stephen McCullough placed a pitch. On Kickstarter.com, asking for $27,000 in donations so that he and his college buddies, I'm just joking, him and his friends could launch a three-month, four-member expedition to the Republic of Congo in search of the Mbembe and other new species. Though the team members largely lacked experience in the jungle or a formal education in biology or zoology, they were confident that they had a good chance. McCullough told LiveScience.com, quote, We don't necessarily expect to find concrete evidence of Mbembe on the first expedition, but we do believe there's a good chance during our initial three months that we will find hard evidence of its presence in the area if it is there, end quote. According to an October 13, 2012 update on Doubtful News website, the NUMAC expedition to find Mbembe failed almost immediately, and the members returned home without success, having spent nearly 30000 of the donated funds. So, in all seriousness, the next portion is the evidence. And there's not a lot of it. There remains no physical evidence of the creature known as Mbembe. Several footprints and eyewitness reports remain our best evidence that the creature may exist. In 1987, while flying over Lake Tele during the production of a documentary, a Japanese film crew claimed to have filmed what they believed to be Mokelebembe. Although skeptics were quick to claim that the image on the videotape showed nothing more than a grainy bird's-eye view of two men in a canoe, the first one standing, which created the illusion of a head and neck, there are many who staunchly believe that the object captured in the film reel was none other than the Mokelebembe itself. Now, there's only been a couple, maybe three sightings. One was Abbott Priart, and that was the first known sighting of the creature. There's no details of it. In 1932, Ivan T. Sanderson, a respected cryptozoologist, claims to witness a large object in the waters near Lake Tele. And then the last supposed sighting was in 1983 when the zoologist Marcelin Agnaga and his team claimed to witness the creature's head and neck rise from the water, filming the creature for several minutes before realizing that the lens cap was on and the creature disappeared. Oh yeah, totally. That is exactly what happened. Nobody questioned that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is about all we have for our little triple, triple take. On the cryptids. On the cryptids. So, we normally get into recommendations. The one thing that I recommend is that you do your own research on this. If you're interested in any of those that we touched on, the Night Marchers, Mbembe, or Mermaids, especially the first two, there is a, I'm sorry, the 
mermaids in the Okele Membe. There is a lot of information out there that you can research, you can watch YouTube videos on. So whatever you want to do, I recommend that you get out there and research it. And I guess my recommendation is tell everyone you know about Mysterious Brews Podcast. We have teamed up with the Cigar Store Idiots, and we are looking at doing some huge things coming forward. We're going. We're still looking at doing an interview with a former police chief in Bargetown, Kentucky, to wrap up that series. We are also looking at visiting with Jen Bucoltz again, talking about the Rebecca Gould case and how that is coming to trial. We have some big things planned on Patreon. So if you're not a member of Patreon, please reach out to patreon.com backslash mysterious brews. We have any type of tier that can get you most everything we produce. You get it early. You get exclusives. If you are a $10 tier or above, you get even more exclusivity with episodes. If you are not a Patreon member, the best thing you can do is tell your friends, get them listening, give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts, give us reviews on any podcast app that you listen to us on, tell a friend, tell anybody you can. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and uh, Raylan, do you have anything else to add? I have nothing, Mr. Orlo. Deuces.